Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Permack. On today's show, a huge shakeup in the aerospace sector and a big reminder on trade deficits. But first, bailing on cash bail. So hopefully you've never been arrested for a crime, let alone been convicted of one. But if you have or know someone else who has, you're probably familiar with the cash bail system, which is basically an incentive to make sure you show up for court after being arrested. You pay a certain amount of money and then you get it back after fulfilling all of your court obligations, whether or not you're found guilty. It has been this way for a very long time in America, but now there's a growing movement to end it, arguing that cash bail discriminates against the poor. How? Well, okay, let's imagine you can't afford the cash bail. You've got three options. The first, just wait in jail until your court hearing, which could be months away. And in the meantime, you've got no income, no ability to take care of your family and things like that. Second, you could use a bail bondsman, many of whom charge big fees for basically what amounts to loans, often 15% of the total bond. And just to show how unsavory this business is, the US is one of just two nations, two that have legal bail bond industries, the other being the Philippines. Third, your last option, just plead guilty. And yes, there are plenty of examples of folks who plead guilty because they couldn't afford bond and options one or two were less appealing. Not surprisingly, some prosecutors and legislators are pushing to change this system. And one is Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner, who appeared on the latest episode of Axios on HBO. The cash bail system keeps broke people in jail because they're broke. And that's a problem. People should be in jail because they are a menace to society, because they are not going to show up for court. The bottom line here is that ending cash bail would be a fundamental change to America's criminal justice system, but one that might be coming sooner rather than later. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios reporter Steph Kite, who led the cash bail segment on Axios on HBO. But first, this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days, it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by Axios reporter Steph Kite. So, Steph, you've been writing a lot about this movement to end cash bail. So let me just begin by asking the flip side of it, which is what's the main argument still for cash bail? And does it still have a lot of proponents or is it simply inertia? Well, I think it's important to remember that cash bail is technically supposed to just be a way to ensure that someone shows up for their court date. And so one of the reasons that some people support cash bail is for that reason, because there needs to be some way to ensure that people who have been charged with a crime actually show up to court in case they are guilty to make sure that process goes through. And there's another concern that if you eliminate cash bail, that there will be more people who are just put in jail without the chance of getting out at all. That's been some of the concern in California, and that's been a concern in Maryland, both states that have moved toward ending cash bail. So as part of the latest episode of Axios on HBO, you talked to Philly District Attorney Larry Krasner, who ended cash bail for most nonviolent crimes last year. He's talking about expanding it to include some violent crimes. 
What was your big takeaway from him? Yeah, speaking to him on this topic in particular was, was super interesting. And one thing that he he spoke a lot about during that interview that unfortunately didn't get to be aired on HBO is that he thinks that sometimes there's too much of a fear of violent crimes, that they can all be lumped into one big scary category. And that category really should be broken down. And one of the things he would talk about is that, yeah, there should be a difference between, between a rape and two men who punch each other in a bar and that there needs to be some distinguishing between these violent crimes that should be less stigmatized as an entire category. And that's something that he's exploring and looking at potentially ending cash bail for some of those less serious violent crimes. It's an interesting thing, right? Because Krasner basically makes the argument that a few dollars or even maybe a few hundred dollars is not necessarily going to be the thing that causes a defendant to show up in court, maybe particularly if they're guilty because they don't want to show up in court. With that does it change because there's more violent crime? In other words, does Krasner believe that, well, if somebody's convicted of, or is accused rather of murder, the bail will make them show up as opposed to those two guys who punch each other in the bar? Yeah, I think when it comes to the most serious crimes, again, there would be some mechanism for forcing someone to stay behind bars, even without the chance of bail. But I think his idea is mostly that what we're doing with the way the cash bail system operates right now is that we're ending up just penalizing people who just don't have cash, who are just broke. And he wants to eliminate that as much as possible because there's this cycle within the criminal justice system where the most impoverished people in our communities are ending up behind bars. And it starts with bail. And oftentimes, one thing that I learned speaking with activists for the deep dive and for the HBO segment is that oftentimes people who can't afford bail will plead guilty whether or not they are guilty because there's a good chance especially if it's a lower level crime, that they'll get off with time served or probation. So even if they aren't guilty, at least they can be freed and they have to follow these rules for probation, but they won't lose their job and they won't, they'll be able to care for their loved ones, things that often they lose when they're cut behind bars because they can't afford bail and they're just waiting for their court date. So obviously one of the big opponents of this is the bail bond industry because no cash bail, no bail bond industry. It ends their job and their livelihoods. They seem fairly powerful, right? You had the legislature in California move to end cash bail, but the bail bondsman objected, and now it's going to end up as a referendum question on the 2020 ballot, correct? Correct. I think that's one of the best examples of the power of the bail bond industry in the U.S. And of course, it's interesting to remember that the U.S. is one of only two nations where a bail bond industry is is even legal. So this isn't the norm in most countries around the world, but these bail bondsmen do have a lot of sway in politics. And especially when I was talking to some advocates, they say especially in more rural and smaller communities, both the bail bondsmen as well as for-profit prison companies do have a lot of power and say in politics and policies. Final question for you. You've been writing a lot about this. You've also been writing a lot about immigration detention centers. Combine these two for me. How are they related? Two of the biggest for-profit prison companies, CoreCivic and GEO Group, who get a lot of the attention when stories are come out about this industry, they're also super important with immigration detention. And over the past few years, the amount of money allocated to them from ICE, from Immigration and Customs Enforcement, has grown. And we're seeing them become even more important in that detention, in that detention industry. And I was speaking to some criminal justice reform people who are watching this, and they're saying it almost mirrors what we saw in the 80s and 90s, where we saw incarceration rates rise, and that's kind of when we saw these companies become such an influential player. And similarly, 
similarly, we're seeing more and more migrants in detention spaces. And with that, these for-profit prison companies are also having a role in that as well. If I'm a migrant and I'm detained, there's no cash bail process for me, correct? It's almost like what some folks, as you said, in Maryland are concerned about, right, which is just indefinite detentions. Right. There are some cases where certain migrants, there are bond prices for migrants, but most of the time at this point, they're going to be kept in these detention facilities for a long period of time until their case is finalized. Steph Kite of Axios, thank you so much for joining us. My final two right after this. Axios chief technology correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is a mega merger in the aerospace and defense industry, with United Technologies agreeing to buy Raytheon in an all-stock deal that would create a company with annual sales of over $70 billion. So this comes just a year after United Technologies bought aircraft parts maker Rockwell Collins, and a few months after saying it would spin off its Otis elevator and carrier air equipment units. The result is a colossus, making everything from jet engines to missiles to cockpit radar. Why it matters in the business world is this creates a very big rival to Boeing and Airbus. In the political world, it could make an appealing target for antitrust regulators. So United Technology and Raytheon will argue they don't have too many overlapping businesses and don't make actual planes, both of which are true. But they do sell a lot to the Department of Defense. And President Trump this morning expressed some skepticism about how the merger would affect the government's ability to negotiate on price. And finally this morning, and speaking of President Trump's interview on CNBC, he also said this. We lose a tremendous amount of money every year with Mexico. You know, for years, we've lost over $100 billion a year on trade with Mexico. So for a president focused so deeply on trade, President Trump often misstates the basic economics. This has been true on how tariffs are paid, and now is also true on the idea of trade deficits. To be clear, America doesn't, quote, lose $100 billion per year on trade with Mexico or lose anything. We receive goods in return, kind of like how I didn't lose 30 bucks at a restaurant last night. I got a meal for it. It's the sort of thing that any high school economics student should know, let alone somebody who went to Wharton. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great national ballpoint pen day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.